open, outspoken. It's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. In this episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid, I kick it off with an interview with Dr. Jeff Mishat, where we talk about inlays. The AccuFocus camera inlay is now approved for use in the U.S., and Jeff helps us separate fact from fiction when it comes to the capabilities of this new technology. It's really hard to imagine any practice today in the U.S. or Canada that is not looking at the presbyopic patient group, the demographic, and saying, I need to have a plan of how I'm going to manage these patients. He'll also help us identify the best candidates to start treating with this device. Later, I speak with Joel Gaslin of SitePath Medical about making smart investments in technology for our practices. Just think about a femtosecond laser for cataract surgery. Let's face it, they're, they're Ferraris and they, and, they, and they too have speed bumps sometimes. Listen in, it's going to be a great episode. This episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid is sponsored by Centurion from Alcon. This is Dr. Gary Wirtz with Ophthalmology Off the Grid, and today I have Dr. Jeff Mashat with me from Toronto, Canada. And uh, Jeff, I just want to say thank you so much for taking a little bit of your time to talk to us about inlays today. Absolute pleasure, Gary. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So, Jeff, you know, in the United States, we finally have an approved device. We have the AccuFocus camera, and a lot of folks don't know if we should be ecstatic hesitant, you know, should we be excited, should we be scared, and now's the time where we really start trying to figure out, you know, fact from fiction. Is this something that, you know, we should be putting in our tool belt to offer to patients? Should we do that full sale? Are there certain patients who aren't good candidates? We really want to figure out who are the low, what's the low-hanging fruit with this technology and what kind of patients are, should we be starting with, perhaps, if we're going to, um, you know, start a program for inlays and presbyopia correction. So with that being said, um, tell us a little bit about your experience. I know you have this personally. One of your optometrists has this. You said other people in your practice. Clearly, this is a technology that you have embraced. Sell me on why I need to embrace this as well, because I'm really excited about the potential for a device like this. Yeah, absolutely, Gary. I'll tell you what's interesting. You know, I was the patient. You know, when I turned 50, I was that person who needed more light, arms were too short, which is pretty common for me anyways. (laughs) And, you know, I said, I need a solution. And it was my 25th year of refractive surgery. Right, wow. So multifocal ablations, uh, laser uh, thermokeratoplasty, scleral implants, I mean, I pretty much tried everything. And then it was my turn. Right. And I had to figure out, and I looked at all the different procedures out there and I said, a corneal inlay, an additive type of refractive procedure, made the most sense to me. Um, I was not ready to have an RLE. Okay. Uh, I didn't want to have uh, a fully invasive procedure because I saw that the IOLs were improving so rapidly. Right. And so I wanted to buy time. It was that simple. And so I look at every single patient that walks through the door in the exact same way. And I try and figure out, so who's the best candidate for this? Typically, it's someone who has maybe plus one and a half, plus two diopters of hyperopia, or someone who's had LASIK previously. They already know refractive surgery works. They already believe in you. They've gone along and had 15 great years, and all of a sudden, they can't read. They need glasses. So those are the top two groups that we treat. But 
you absolutely have to make sure of two things. One, their tear film is good or you have to optimize it. And two, you absolutely need these patients to have a clear lens. So you need some way of measuring optical scatter. And those are the two big criteria that we have. Okay. Well, that kind of brings me to a next critical part, which is the HD analyzer. And it seems like maybe perhaps in the earlier days with AccuFocus, previous to having the HD analyzer, maybe it was a little tougher to figure out, does this patient have a little bit of, of NS and that's gonna perhaps cause a little bit of problem or how do I get this centered exactly where I want? Talk me, talk me through how the HD analyzer maybe has helped as maybe you've had experience both before and now with the technology. Yeah, so I had my eye done uh, I guess it's almost four years ago, three and a half years ago now. And we started with the AccuTarget. Okay. And frankly, the AccuTarget and the AccuTarget HD analyzer are two separate instruments entirely. Mm -hmm. uh, they're developed by different companies and they actually work completely differently. The HD analyzer has some very unique features. It's amazing. Uh, to be able to determine the clarity of the lens. Is there optical scatter? How good the tear film is? Dynamic tear film testing. Uh, what's the accommodation range like on the patient now and then postoperatively? And then of course it tells you where to place the inlay and then postoperatively assesses it. So five functions. But it's the, the, the visual function anal analysis of the lens and the tear film that make it our go-to device on every single patient that walks through the door to decide do I do a corneal-based procedure or a lens-based procedure? So it may share the same name as the original one, but it's a completely different machine. And I think that's a great distinction for people to know that the technology has not just um, iteratively become a little bit better, but they actually have changed full sail the way that the technology works and what it, the information it's giving you. And it really makes sense to me that you want to have a, a machine at your disposal where you can ferret out whether you should do a corneal-based procedure or a lens-based procedure. You know, I'm not doing inlays yet in, in my practice. It's something we're evaluating, just like a lot of practices right now. But, you know, we kind of do the same thing when we have patients come in who are perhaps post-LASIK. And they want an enhancement or they want something done. They want to see clearer. And we are trying to figure out, all right, is this, is this coming from maybe some regression? of the LASIK or is this coming from something going on in the lens and with our OPD3 that we have it's really good at telling us all right these are the aberrations in the cornea here are the aberrations in the lens this is what it looks like if you put them together and it really helps us determine whether or not we want to go and do, do a LASIK or a you know service ablation enhancement um, or if we want to go ahead and do a, a lens-based or a dysfunctional lens replacement type procedure. So I can definitely um, hear what you're saying from that standpoint that it's really, it's got to be very nice to have a piece of technology that really simplifies who is going to perhaps do well with one procedure versus the other. And we have an eye trace as well. We use right. it for the exact same purpose. It's really hard to imagine any practice today in the U.S. or Canada that is not looking at the presbyopic patient group, the demographic, and saying, I need to have a plan of how I'm going to manage these patients. And therefore, you need a piece of technology that helps you. I 100% agree. And you know, we got our OPD you know, fairly uh, recently. So, um, but it was just because we had, we realized that there was a number of patients coming in for LASIK screenings, and they were 55. And that's a really tough age group to know 
you know, because you look with a slit lamp and you maybe see a little bit and you're trying to convince yourself that it's clear if you want to do LASIK or maybe it's a little <laughs> bit more opaque if you want to do cataract surgery. You, you kind of play mind games with what's going on, but it's really nice to have objective data to really help drive you in one direction or the other. So, you know, some other things you know, that we've heard um, perhaps that, you know, some patients um, maybe earlier on had some issues uh, with maybe e either corneal thinning or progressive um, erosion perhaps, the long-term need for steroids. And, you know, I'm sure that's got to be very individualized and we know it's not common, but can you share anything with us about how do you maybe minimize that in, if you're just starting out or even, you know, in general in a population, any way to minimize that? Well, let's take a step back okay. because, it, you know, it's so interesting where I'm, I'm at all these different refractive surgery meetings and people will start talking about corneal inlays and there's so much misinformation. Just like the AccuTarget uh, has taken this quantum leap towards the AccuTarget HD and it's a completely different type of unit, um, the camera inlay procedure has really changed. I mean, if you look at what they're doing in Europe and where a lot of the problems came from, or even the FDA trials, we've had some very significant learnings. First of all, even when I began, which was three and a half years ago, right after I had my own eye done, um, number one was, at that point, we were using 200 micron flaps and implanting the inlay under that. And first of all, much more dry eye, much more wound healing, which means much more hyperopic shift, much more haze, much more fluctuating vision, much slower visual recovery. And then we switched to pockets, that all changed. Okay. And it changed dramatically. The second thing we learned was that when you start to look at the FDA trial results, you realize that the type of femtosecond laser and the settings that you had also changed things dramatically. When they stratify the data based upon which eczema laser, uh, sorry, which uh, femtosecond right. laser uh, people were using and what settings they had, and most people just used whatever they used for LASIK, it makes a huge difference. You're looking through a 1.6 millimeter aperture and you need to have an incredibly smooth bed. Right. It will definitely have huge effect, just like any lens aberrations. I see. So, mm -hmm. people who had their settings of 6.6 or better or tighter did a lot better than people who used 9.9 or 8.8. There was a very significant difference in the clinical results. And Zemer, which is what I use, which has an overlapping raster pattern with low energy, had even the best results. Okay. So, we really saw a difference there. So, what has it told us? It told us that right now you have to have pocket software. You want to use the IFS or the FS200 or the Zemer. You want to have very tight uh, raster patterns. So 4.4 is probably what I would recommend to people today. Mm -hmm. So you have nice smoothness. <clears throat> We're typically going minimum 200 microns to 250 microns. In fact, 250 micron depth is my go-to. Okay. So right away, the whole issues with melting, I haven't seen it. I haven't even heard about it in anyone that's doing that. Okay. Only when they were using flaps that were about 170 or less. Okay. So thinner, thinner yeah. flaps, less, less stroma exactly. above the, the, the inlay. That makes yeah. sense. So these sort of things. The other thing that we learned from the FDA trials is two thirds of the patients were plus a half. Ah. And the people who saw the best were actually the people who were minus a half, minus three quarters. Right. So in my personal practice in Canada, we do LASIK, even if they're plus a quarter, and we make them minus three quarters, okay. and then a week to a month later, I'll make the pocket and insert the inlay. Okay, what about, so as I'm hearing this, it sounds like 
there's been a, a big learning curve. There's a lot of things in the procedure that what was done early on maybe is tainting people's perspective of what can be delivered now on the other side of, of this learning curve. Right. And, and the fourth, and, and, and just to add to that, is the HD analyzer. Mm -hmm. We can now really tell if it's centered. In the original unit, I would have a patient take three readings and the inlay would move, which clearly it wasn't. Right. Right. Whereas now, I actually know where the inlay is. We've learned a lot. We also know people tolerate a superior decentration much less than inferior decentration. Okay. So we've learned a lot of different things in terms of how people are. Explant rate is 2% or less globally. It's not 10% or 25% as people talk if people are using the latest approach and technique. And in my practice, I mean, we've done hundreds of them, and it's rare for people not to be happy. Now, I'll tell people though, look, only about 20% of people get this overnight vision miracle like LASIK where they can read, and I was one of them. Right. Um, Sandra Black, my clinical director, it took her about six weeks. And that's more common in females with a compromised tear film to take longer. So we put collagen punk the plugs, three-month plugs, in everybody. Okay. And we use restasis in 100% of females and about 60% of males. Okay. We're very aggressive with our tear film management, with myeloma gland dysfunction management, really trying to optimize these patients. But we have really happy people. I would say 80% of the patients that I treat are super happy. About 18% are happy, they would never want it removed, and about 2% will fail. They never neuroadapt, it never connects with their brain, they just can't do it, or they develop haze that is not treatable with steroids, and that's pretty much it. Right. But it's overwhelmingly, people are really happy, really excited about it, it's been a great addition to our practice, and it's increased our RLE practice fourfold. Wow, because you've got patients who are sort of giving, you're giving them options and you're talking to them about this or that and some well, may vote for one They or the come other. in for camera, they're all excited. You use the AccuTarget HD analyzer, you see that they have lens aberrations and you go, okay, look, this is where your problem is. We're gonna have to do a lens procedure, not a corneal procedure. And they go, okay, and they immediately understand that. Yeah, well, I think, I think you raise a lot of very interesting points. And, I, I tell my patients that my success rate with cataract surgery exceeds 99%. You know, and, and I, I, I tell them also that in medicine, nothing is 100%. Right. So when we talk about um, new technology, we talk about efficacy, I think that if you can get to 98% of your practice, and I believe you, you're sitting here telling me this, I have no reason to doubt you, um, I believe that that's achievable. And so if if we can use the right settings on our laser, if we can select the right patients, if we can do the right corneal-based procedures and, and stay away from those patients who have perhaps the uh, lens-based um, refractive problems. You know, I think 98%, it's really hard in, in a refractive market, in a refractive technology, it's really hard to get beyond 98% because your margin is just so low. And I also tell my patients, you know, you see with your brain, your eyes feed your brain the information, and you know we're, we're, we're making some aberrations or we're changing some things. Anytime we do surgery, whether that's an inlay, whether that's LASIK, especially with multifocals or torix, you know, we're changing the way they were designed to see in some way, shape, or form, and it does take a little bit of time for them to adapt to that. So that's actually very encouraging for me to hear that, that you're having this much success 
that you are a patient, not only a doctor who is doing this, you've had it done yourself and you're enjoying it. And I've actually listened to your optometrist, Sandra, and you know, she always says that you were the worst person to have an overnight <laughs> wow effect because you know, she didn't have that result, but she's great to talk to the patients to set them up that this is likely going to be a journey and that at the end of their journey, they're going to be very, very happy. So um, one other question real quick is when you do, when you do LASIK, um, are you, I assume you're doing, you know, probably like a 110 flap, you're doing a thin flap LASIK, or are yes. you doing surface ablation with these patients prior to their inlay? So I, I'm a firm believer that LASIK is the way to go. Okay. I know some people have done PRK camera. Um, I'm, I'm not a subscriber to that philosophy. Uh, their philosophy is basically, well, you know, most people are going to be blurry for a month, they're going to need lots of drops, do it all at once, have a single interface. My belief is that it's the central part that the patient is looking through and that's going to be the last part of the epithelium to smooth out. Right. And I like LASIK because I can always lift that flap and enhance if I need to. I know exactly where I am with my target refraction. Right. I'm not stimulating any keratocytes which could then develop more wound healing effects. And it's worked really well. I do LASIK, the next day the patients are, wow, this is amazing. Then they come back a week later, I do their camera, and I say, okay, this is going to be different. They already trust me now, they believe in me. I said, this is going to be slower. If you're in the 20%, you'll heal fast. If you're in the 80%, you'll heal slow. And it buys that trust. And I think that's such a huge part of this. You know, LASIK is so nice because it's, it's relatively pain-free. Like you said, patients get that wow factor. And it is, it's the building blocks of trust or a nice foundation for which to build successive procedures upon. And I think that, you know, as I'm sitting here kind of thinking about this myself, if I were the patient, I paid a lot of money, went through a big procedure. The next day I wake up, my eyes in horrible pain, and it's going to be a while before I see well, and I'm already starting to think, what did I get myself into? You know, and you can start playing those mind games with yourself and really wonder, did I get, you know, if you start being negative, then And, and then from a marketing perspective, yeah, all exactly. their friends are calling them. Right, exactly. You really, I agree, you really want them to have positive experience upon positive yes. experience and you know that's that's just that's I think very good medicine and I think it's also great from a business and you know branding and you know marketing perspective but I, too. I, I tell other surgeons the same thing that I went through myself I say look corneal inlays are in their infancy we are just introducing this as part of our refractive armamentarium it's going to get better we're going to learn more, our techniques are going to get better, our results are going to get better. A lot of people will do like three or five or even ten and they think that they've learned everything. Right. You know, a hundred plus, I'm still learning. Two hundred plus, I'm still learning. Just like with LASIK, you know, it's not the first handful. I tell them, you got to do thirty or forty. Then you start feeling comfortable. Now I do it, it is so easy, it is so quick, it is so much fun, it's a great procedure. And we're gonna have more inlays and more choices and you gotta get involved now because it's only gonna build on what you do. What I like about the camera very simply is I'm binocularly balanced. I still have great stereopsis. I haven't given up distance vision to gain near. I went back and did surgery within three days of leaving Japan. Wow. And I don't have any spot that I can't see. So I see distance, intermediate, and close. And since I had it three and a half years ago, my right eye has gotten worse, more presbyopic, and my left has stayed J1+. That's so awesome. So it prevents 
the progression of presbyopia from affecting you as any refractive inlay would do. So there's a lot of different reasons. And number one, so it didn't work for me, take it out. We've had patients, didn't work for them, the brain, they had more glare, they couldn't get adjusted to it. We took it out, we did an RLE, they were happy. Right. You have all the choices in the world. Talk to me a little bit about haze. I guess that would be the one area where I'd feel like, you know, we always like to operate under the do no harm, you know, mantra. And, you know, at what point, if you start seeing haze, I know it's rare, it's especially now. It's 4%. 4%. If you start seeing it, is it just more aggressive steroids to start? Have you been able to rescue people that way? Or when you, when you do, if you do have to explant, what are, your, what are you doing to try to minimize haze or make that haze regress if possible? All right, so, uh, you know, I think of it like the early days of PRK, the old Summit UV200 Eximed laser. And, you know, it didn't matter what you did with steroids. The point was there was a small percentage of people who would haze up. It was just the nature of the beast. And so you would literally over-treat most people just to catch those people. And you'd have people who stopped their drops after two weeks, non-compliant, and they stayed crystal clear. Yet other people, they used them for six months and they still developed haze. And this is similar. About 4% of people will do it. We don't know who is the 4%. Once you see it, once it develops, they start to become hyperopic. So that 4% will suddenly come in, and they don't say, I see hazy. They say, my reading vision has gone down. Mm -hmm. You take a look, and you see, hmm, haze. You put them on steroids. And we usually will hit them hard for two weeks, pred for four times a day for two weeks, and then reassess them. If they improve, typically they'll come back, and they're back to J1, J2, and they're happy, and they're myopic again, and everything is great. Then just slow taper off. Okay. If there's no improvement, then you're done. It's not going to help. And about 75-80% will respond. Okay. Okay? So if you get to them early, they will respond. You taper them off. They'll stay quiet. And I've had people stay quiet for years after. Okay. So it really does work again. Now, if they develop the haze and it doesn't go with steroids, then you have to take out the inlay right away. Okay. Because it acts like anitis. It's not going to disappear. And that's it. And then you can let it all settle down. The haze will disappear over time, but just like a PRK haze, it takes a long time, like a year plus. Right. And you could always stick another inlay. You could go at a different depth, which I've done as well, or you can look at another procedure like an RLE. But I've never had anyone lose BCVA from that. And I think that's a, that's a really key point. You know, if you're looking, if you're following these patients, it's not to say that um, you know, it's untreatable. You look at them, if they develop haze, you treat it. If they're not getting better, you take out the inlay and it gets better over time. Um, those are all things that are really music to my ears as I'm <laughs> one who's kind of thinking, you know, what am I getting myself into? Am I going to cause headaches for myself? But the reality is... Well, I'm going to interview you next time. Okay, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good. I'd love that. Um, but as we have patients who are presbyopic, they're so motivated, they want help, they want us to be able to provide the best for them. I'm really enjoying my multifocal practice, which is something I never thought I would say because of the new low ads I'm using. And I'm really having a blast right now taking care of presbyopia because patients really value their, the correction of presbyopia. And I, can, I, I know I can yeah. just tell from, from, from what you're saying that this is a part of your practice that you really enjoy. Yeah, and we use a lot of Symphony. The extended range of focus mm -hmm. lenses are, are huge. And Symphony and the ICA, which is the camera inlay in an IOL, 
that's the future. Right. I mean, patients are really, really happy, you know, going down that line. But the low ads, you know, I'd say that's probably 70% of our practice now, either in combination or alone. It's right. incredible. Right. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for giving us all of your, you know, insights, not only as a physician who's doing this, but your own perspectives as a patient. You know, these are the real pearls that I want docs out there to understand, to know, and um, I just really find it valuable to have these conversations, and uh, hopefully others will as well. So thank you. No problem. My absolute pleasure, Gary. Thank okay. you. Okay. This has been Dr. Gary Wirtz with Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Technology is changing quickly, and that makes it difficult to decide which platforms we should invest in within our practice. I had the opportunity to speak with Joel Gaslin from SitePath Medical over Skype to learn more about their services and how they work to provide access to high-tech platforms for all physicians and patients in a cost-effective way. Today we have with us uh, Joel Gaslin with SitePath, and I think many of us in the uh, ophthalmology world are familiar with SitePath and the other variable access technology platforms that are out there. And Joel, I just want to say thank you for coming on and um, giving us a little bit of a rundown of the value your company can provide to surgeons who are maybe looking to dabble or looking to uh, gain entry into the either femtosecond laser-assisted cataract surgery market, maybe bladeless LASIK, um, or maybe even uh, some of the other uh, services that you provide. So with that being said, just uh, want to say thank you for coming on and why don't you give us a little bit of an overview of the services you provide and where you see that adding value. Thanks, Gary. Uh, grateful to be here. I appreciate the, the time and the opportunity to, to visit with you for a little bit. Uh, SitePath is, uh, as you alluded to, thank you, the, the market leader in variable access to really what we call our three primary platforms versus cataract surgery, which uh, is our largest segment where we uh, operate in about 425 different sites around the country uh, where we provide full access to everything people need to do cataract surgery which really stem from the founding belief uh, that you know care closest to home is is what's best and uh, evolving from that was next our LASIK platform which uh, we operate in about 250 sites around the country with uh, full access to the um, eczema laser platforms we use and then the femtosecond laser uh, is the interlaser we use for that, uh, and then we have our our growing our, our nicely growing segment is our uh, femtosecond laser for cataract surgery business, where uh, we bring the LensX laser from Alcon uh, into facilities and um, it travels with an engineer, so it's always up and ready. And and as you alluded to, also there there is no capital outlay with working with SitePath. We uh, realize we're a service company and we have um, lots of different ways we do business and we really just try and find unique ways to help people meet their goals and be profitable from case one. Yeah, and, and you know, honestly, I, I've, I've used SitePath in the past and companies like yours, in many ways, they allow the solo guys or the small guys compete with some of the bigger guys that are out there. And so, you know, I've kind of I've been on both sides of that coin. Um, I find myself in a center now where we actually end up having a lot of the technology at our disposal, you know, in our in our surgery center and in our clinic. Um, so I'm kind of on the other side of that coin now. But, you know, I recall when I was uh, in solo practice and going out into the hinterlands of Kentucky, you know, I wanted to bring some of the, you know, high technology to my patients. And it really wouldn't have been cost effective for me, especially given that I had multiple locations 
to, you know, for example, purchase an eczema laser for each location or purchase a, a, a femtosecond laser for cataract surgery for each location. And, and honestly, even just bringing FACO equipment and um, uh, a technician and a, a microscope can be challenging sometimes. So, you know, I really feel like your company has provided um, maybe the little guy or the guys who are out there uh, trying to make a difference um, in some of the smaller markets um, or someone who's up and coming um, you really allow those guys to have access to technology that you know maybe they wouldn't otherwise have. And I think that's really important. I think it really levels the playing field and allows people to um, gain access to that technology even if they're not at a large center. And you're right, Gary. That's, that's typically how people have thought about SitePath. And um, if I may be so bold as to suggest sort of a, a changing megatrend in our business is that um, you can almost – and I really – I think about SitePath almost like software as a service. And if you think about uh, how that technology has evolved over time, you know, we used to buy a box of software, you'd plug it in and then sort of go about your business. And uh, really Salesforce was the first sort of multi-tenant solution uh, software platform that came along that where people said, hey, I'd rather just have somebody else deal with this continually changing technology, upgrades, all things that come along with that. So while you're absolutely correct, we started uh, in sort of small markets, I would say we, and that's still the bread and butter of our business. We really see a lot more. We're into sort of the, I would call it mid markets. Even we work in some really big centers. Like we've just begun working with the entire Emory system where people are just saying, Hey, ophthalmology changes so fast. There's so much happening and SitePath can manage all my maintenance agreements. They can handle all my supplies. They have expert technic technicians that, uh, stay up to date on all the latest trends, do a lot of, uh, work. We have backup staff, redundancies, all the stuff that they need that they don't really want to deal with. So we're starting to see that as, especially when you introduce femtosecond lasers for cataract surgery into it with you know, a lot of the big hospital chains and things just saying, look, we don't want to deal with that piece of equipment. So it's really a nice place for us and, and, uh, and, and really is, I think, an interesting trend in our business. And if you sort of look down the line and, and depending on where you sort of fall in the camp of office-based cataract surgery, you know, that really makes it interesting for a site path model where you can uh, you know, just have it there for a certain period of time, then it moves out and you can take that space and use it for something else. And it sounds like you guys have really sort of tried to create the easy button solution. And, yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. Right. You know, yeah. And there's so many headaches that we have to deal with, and you're exactly right. Sometimes you feel like investing in a technology by the time it gets – physically in your location, something better has already come out. <laughs> and so, well, yeah, you know, you're right. And then if you, if you think about, just, just think about a femtosecond laser for cataract surgery, whether it's lens X or whatever you, you know, that's a very sophisticated piece of equipment. And, and, and while, uh, it, it, as you suggested earlier, if you, if you have a big center and you've got, you know, multiple, uh, staff redundancies and, uh, people who are interested in dealing with a piece of equipment like that, it's pretty easy for you to start going along and using it. What people really appreciate about our service is that engineer who's there and knows how to clear those error messages that invariably come up with software, is comfortable doing that that day-to-day, -day and, um, and just that's all they do. They really love having that person there. And then it's also the fact that they're manufacturer-certified engineers. So they can take that piece of equipment apart. They can put it back together. Let's face it, they're, they're Ferraris, and they, and they, and they do have speed bumps sometimes. So yeah. having that sort of uh, belt and suspenders approach of a guy that travels with it is frankly what people really like about our service. 
Well, I, I think you're exactly right, and I can speak to that personally. Um, I was doing LASIK with SightPath a few years ago, and you know my volume wasn't really high, so I was doing LASIK, you know, maybe once or twice a month. Um, but it made me feel very comfortable um, having a technician who, you know, he knew this laser like the back of his hand. And if there were any errors that came up, um, anything that was maybe um, something that I had a question about with the functionality of the laser with calibration or other issues, I, I got to tell you, this guy knew his stuff backwards and forwards. And honestly, I walked into the laser suite without a lot of anxiety because, you know, obviously I knew how to do my part well, but that anxiety you have about what if there's an equipment malfunction or what if things don't go the way they're planned, you know, I knew that I had really good backup with someone that was very knowledgeable about the equipment. And the other piece of that is, you know, if you're doing procedures on a variable basis, maybe once or twice a month like that, it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense to tie up an entire room and beyond that, having a laser that's sort of, you know, with a dust cover on it, 80% of its lifetime. Right. So, and, and if you, you know, I've used the, the phrase with people that SightPath is sort of um, Geek Squad meets Uber a little bit, right? I mean, we have uh, sort of on demand and then we have this person who comes with it. And interestingly, if you look in sort of our society right now, there's a, there's a big trend towards sort of underutilized capacity. You know, I was at a... If you're familiar with the, you know, the Geek Squad at all, it was founded by a guy named Robert Stevens, who's from up here in Minneapolis. And I happened to be at a, a, a conference where he was speaking the other day, and he was talking about that's sort of his next uh, sort of frontier that he's working on is this notion of, uh, of sort of tapping and accessing and monetizing underutilized uh, capacity. And if you think about it, that's what Uber is, and there are lots of things happening. So we have all these lasers that sit around in places and, and they work maybe one day a week or two days a week. And really what SightPath does is we take that capacity and unlock it and, and make it work all the time. So um, it's, uh, it's, so it's a little bit of a, maybe sort of a green angle of what we do as well. So. Sure. No, I think that's really important. You know, our economy is, is always moving and people are always looking to figure out uh, new ways of, of changing business models, but I really feel like um, the value that you provide is, um, it, like you said, is on, honestly, you know, I always thought about it in the uh, sense of a of a smaller market. But you're, you know, you really, you're really right. I think you guys are um, providing value probably across the spectrum. Um, well, we are in another place we find Gary is that when, even in sometimes bigger centers, or I would say sort of medium sized centers, especially as uh, with femtosecond laser is that proliferate sometimes people just want maybe one extra day a month or one extra day a week to sir I call it kind of a pressure relief day that you may have a doctor who would bring more cases or would maybe be a little more efficient if he had another room so we bring in uh, a full room of cataract surgery equipment and instruments and uh, and a technician or uh, a femtosecond laser or just something to for a one day a month to be able to say hey Dr. Wirtz would really love to have two rooms that day or three rooms or whatever the case may be. Uh, and, and so we're seeing that pop up a lot as well a lot too. So gotcha. just another trend out there. Yeah. One other thing I've encountered in the past, and maybe you can speak this a little bit, is sort of the idea of volume minimums. You know, you all have to make it worth your while to bring technology because if, if you bring it to one center, that means you're, you're not at a different center. So talk to me a little bit about um, the volume minimums and, you know, ways you, you've helped doctors sort of be able to pool their, their um, 
patients to sort of come in on one day rather than sort of trickling in on, on multiple days? Yeah, our, our, our pricing is, is pretty straightforward in that we're, we're, as you suggest, we're a stop-based business. So what that means is we really incur our costs when we stop. So uh, and we have whether it's a hotel expense, fuel expense, uh, install the lasers or the fake equipment or whatever the case may be. And so when we incur those costs, the more cases we do, the more efficient we do. So we usually we, we feature what we call tiered pricing. So the more cases we do throughout the day, the more efficient we become and we, when we share that with the facility. So from a pure minimum standpoint, you're absolutely right. There is a sort of a Mason-Dixon line of where we have to make a certain amount. Otherwise, we're losing money when we show up. And that's generally about six cases. Okay. So like, on a LASIK, you know, on a, for a LASIK surgeon, you say, okay, that's three patients. I can generally muster three patients a, a month, and people find that uh, that's, not, that's not too hard. Uh, and on the FEMTO platform, as we uh, are, are for cataract surgery, I mean, as we're starting, yeah, we're in the six to eight range. Or I can tell you across our fleet of uh, 31 lasers that, we have an average per stop of above nine, and okay. we've got some that do some really high volumes and some that kind of stick around seven to ten. So, you know, that's sort of where we're falling right now, and that's how we model the fleet out. And, uh, you know, we're running now on the femtosecond laser for cataract surgery at a run rate of about 1,600 cases a month. And, you know, we've done almost 40,000 procedures now, so we've got a lot of experience on that. And, and those numbers kind of stay those work. I, mean, I can tell you those low numbers were not super profitable. We're, we, we believe, especially on the femtosecond laser for cataract surgery, we believe if we make the investment which we have in the fleet, we believe that the technology will proliferate in the market and ultimately uh, will grow with our physicians. So yeah. um, our hope is we get more profitable as they get more profitable. And we, it seems to be bearing itself to be true. So. Well, to that end, you know, the, the, um, it seems like whenever a new device comes out, it always requires um, potential capital outlay for other devices to use it. So, for example, um, the, Accu, the, uh, the AccuFocus camera, you know, is a new corneal inlay that's been approved. And recently, I think Raindrop has been approved by the FDA. So, you know, as a um, refractive cataract surgeon, LASIK surgeon, someone who's interested in um, presbyopia correction and uh, these new technologies, you know, we already at our facility own two femtosecond lasers, you know, one for LASIK and one for cataract surgery. And now the question is, if we get into the business of doing um, corneal inlays, unfortunately, neither one of our femtosecond lasers uh, has a upgrade uh, for pockets. So, you know, we're, we're sort of going through the, the calculus of, all right, what is our capital outlay going to be? And would it make sense to buy a new, another femtosecond laser? And that's that's really when I started kind of thinking, you know, maybe SightPath might be a solution before we, um, you know, go you know full Monty with with inlays. Maybe this would be a solution for us to uh, try it out, see how it how it works on the patients that we're um, considering, uh, without having to um, incur the expense of a brand new third or replacement second femtosecond laser. So. Um, and you, as we talked offline a little bit, it sounds like your fleet of um, IFS lasers, um, some of them have already been upgraded, or actually a fair amount of them have been upgraded to create pockets. So um, tell me a little bit about that uh, side of the business as well, as that's kind of a new place for the business to go. Uh, it, it is a new segment of the business for us. And we, and as you mentioned, we did talk a little bit about that offline, and we... Um, and we own 
17 mobile interlace units, of which about 40% are upgraded to IFS, and the others are 60 hertz, and simply because they work fine, and, and as you mentioned too, it's an expensive upgrade to right. upgrade that equipment. And, and what we find is that from the, at least initially in the market, the camera procedure itself, you know, our business works, Gary, when we have some, some volume to the procedure. When we start having to come and do one and two procedures, it just doesn't work that great. Right. So uh, what we, I would say, we, we opportunistically upgrade the laser. So if we are in an area and our rep comes across an opportunity that says, hey, this guy, will, it's a new client or to, to um, sort of add value to a current client, we really look at it and say, okay, can we help some other people get started on that? And we also talked about the AccuTarget device. And at least at this point, when we got, when we first started talking to AccuFocus after they gained approval from the FDA, they didn't want us to mobilize that AccuTarget device. And uh, our EVP of operations, Dan Robbins, the guy who's been doing this for 18 years, and, and he and I looked at each other and he kind of chuckled because, you know, we mobilized many wave scans. I mean, I think we mobilized 35 or 40 wave scans and it certainly can't be any harder to mobilize than that. So we believe we could if given the opportunity to do it. Um, but again, it's just, that sort of gets down to economics because um, we don't, we don't really know where the technology is in that market right now. We're, we try and be early in the market yet we really can't be first because we want to scale it nationwide. Right. And there's a tremendous amount of risk in doing that. So sure. while we do, while we are, we understand our position in the market and we are in a bit of the risk mitigation business We're we're also, uh, you know, we're not state farm either. So it's, um, we try and balance that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. I will say though, as you know, sort of, on the um, on the physician side, I do think having access to an AccuTarget HD and a mobile platform, um, as well as an IFS, you know, that would really be a nice solution uh, for guys like myself who are maybe looking to um, get into the market uh, prior to making a, a really large capital investment. So um, that may be something for you and and for them. And you know, um, I know Jim Mazo is he's a great guy, and they've got great leadership um, over there. So not questioning what what their strategy is, but um, as we all look for opportunities to make a difference, that may be something that down the road uh, becomes an opportunity for uh, all involved. So I think that's something to to probably have an active dialogue going forward. I think it's a potentially a good idea. No, I, I appreciate that. You're right, and, and they do have good leadership and. And, and they aren't, frankly, a lot different than um, anyone else. They have a unique sort of position in the market. They're first mover, and they want to move whatever they can to, uh, to, to fully optimize their opportunity. I completely understand that. And, frankly, we've had sort of the same discussions with the Avidro folks on Cornell Crosslinking. So, sure. um, you know, that's uh, – so we're kind of in the same place there, and that's another – and you didn't ask me about that, so I, I, we don't have to talk about it. But that's another sort of technology, at least at the ASCRS, we had a lot of people come by and ask us if we were going to, going to get into Cornell cross-linking. And, um, and we just don't know at the time, frankly. Sure. Right? sure. Well, this is an exciting field. It's always growing. And with these new approvals, like you said, with cross-linking and with the new inlays, um, it wouldn't surprise me if we had a conversation in a year or two and um, you do offer those services. And again, I think, you know, the more services you can offer, the better from the phys physician standpoint, but right. we, we understand that it is a business. You got to make sure that it 
makes sense and you've got to have buy-in from the companies who are um, going to be helping you mobilize those devices. So, well, Joel, I, I really appreciate um, all of all the information that you gave us. I, I think your company really does provide a lot of important um, access to technology. That's why you know I wanted to, to have you on. I think it's important for ophthalmologists to know that maybe just because they don't have technology in their office, it doesn't mean they don't, they can't have access to it. And the more access we have, you know, it really, it's kind of like the rising tide floats all boats. So that's great. So thanks again for coming on. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate uh, you taking the time and the folks at BMC for the work you're doing. It's a great idea. I love podcasts. They're easy to consume and and a good way to to, uh, get more information. Absolutely. It's nice to listen to to and from work, isn't it? (laughs) I do it when I'm, uh, the stairmaster in the morning. There you go. There you go. Well, thanks, Joel. Once again, this is Ophthalmology Off the Grid with Dr. Gary Weiss. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Send us your thoughts on this episode by tweeting at itube.net or emailing us at ootg at bmctoday.com. Until next time. This episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid is sponsored by Centurion from Alcon.